All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another Bell Curve Roundup. You got Michaels 1 and 2, Vance and Yano. Fellas, welcome. What's up? Good Mike, you got your podcast voice. All right, everyone, welcome back to the- it goes like one off, like one 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 deeper. We should we should record one minute earlier one week just so that we can see the change. <laughs> yeah, I've got a little bit of Elizabeth Holmes syndrome going on. The honestly, the best podcast would be when I, I have the Elizabeth Holmes today. This is yeah, my do. I'm I'm really going. I'm really trying to bring out you the Elizabeth Holmes in me. Exactly. Yeah, there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of job scene vibes there. All right, Michael. Let's answer this on on the on camera here. Why do you think the content at Netflix is not good? Well, I was gonna say we have someone who used to work at Netflix. He's probably got perspectives. Oh yeah, Vance. What do you think? I I mean they do have really good content. I think like the the stuff that I watch a lot of are the K dramas, like things like uh, the Glory, even like things like Beef. Like they have a lot of like the deep, you know, the the ones that cut deep, but. It feels like their entire movie slate is just, I don't know, it's kind of like low budget, honestly, but they'll figure it out. They've had a big quarter, too. They're starting to, they're, they made like $2 billion of profit this quarter, so maybe you see some of that get reinvested. Well, they, not, also lost, they also lost Friends. They lost The Office. They lost all the Universal films and TV shows. They lost MGM. Uh, you know what I, they I feel did? Like they, they over-optimized. I feel like they had some like complex algorithm that told them what was good, and it ended up leading to like a bunch of the same kind of like crappy content that was able to just get pumped out. That's what I think too. Yeah. They, I think they overall, like they tried to create content based on an algorithm and for a, like a little while it worked really, really well. And then they over invested in that. There's some you know things they, you can't data science or turn over to the crowd. Content creation is one running a DAO is, is generally like another, like, you know, it's kind of like the Steve jobs, like consumers have no idea what they want. You just need to like put something new in front of them. And if you go the other direction, you kind of just get the copy pasta stuff. Not that. The one I am excited, I don't know if you guys ever read this book, but All, uh, All the Light We Cannot See. Uh, that movie, it, it's a really good book, but that movie is coming out, I think, in October or November this year. Um, mm. That one, star-studded cast, looks really, you know, high production value. I think that, I think it's right. You know, Netflix, for a long time, their, their entire capitalization model was we're going to finance all this content with debt. Because we can raise infinite amount, infinite amounts of debt. We have this cash flow business. We can just like pump anything we want out. Now I think it's okay. We're not going to go the debt route. We're going to get to profitability. We're going to actually kind of hone in what we're building, and then we're going to be able to actually produce good content. But yeah, that's kind of where I think they're at. Netflix for a, they 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 were the first stock I ever bought, actually, or one of the first ones. That I I was holding it for a while. You remember I remember this, that. So well, yeah. <laughs> it was that. It was that, and the and the. Oh my god! What what years were this? This was oh. uh. This had to be 2016. This was right after this. We were. This is when Mike and I were not only roommates but living in the same room because we were in the so, same room. Yeah, same room. This we was. Two, we don't need to get into. We put, we, oh yeah, we don't need to get into it. <laughs> we don't need to get into the details of it. But yeah, 
But yeah, Yano and I, do you remember Yano and I FOMO'd into IBM because Warren Buffett bought some? Do you remember that? These were like, we were early, like, uh... we were like, wait a minute. This is so easy. Buffett tells you what he buys. Why don't you just buy what Buffett buys? These people are idiots. We can just copy Buffett. Honestly, everyone's messing around with stablecoin designs. IBM is the real stablecoin. You look at the chart of IBM over the last five years, you can't even see COVID on there. It's just like a band <laughs> like this. It just does not move. But Netflix, that's Netflix was great for a while. It was just, uh, I mean, it was all about subscriber count. And when they diversified into international, dude, it's every quarter they would beat, you know, by a huge margin on subscriber account. And the stock would jump like 10%. And then every once in a while, they would jack up their price by like 10%, which was with the equivalent of a dollar. And the stock would jump 10%. It was, it was a great, it was a great down. You're starting to see like some of these tech companies are clearly going to make it. Like, especially the ones that bottomed in June last year, cut their costs and are now kind of like turning things around. Like you had the meta beat, you have the Netflix chart, which just like looks phenomenal. Pretty good quarter. Not as much yeah. subscriber growth, but like, I think that's kind of the, uh, the future for a lot of these things, right? Like your top line slows, you get a lot more profitable and you sprinkle some AI on it and, and you make it like Netflix will make it. I think, you know, Michael, unfortunately, the one that it doesn't look like it, it might make it is, uh, is snap that, that chart looks like, uh, looks bad the underworld just just terrible yeah it's an unfortunate fact um <clears throat> i i still have one one share of stock uh i'm a, i'm still a shareholder but um we're right at the precipice of the the cost of the commission of trading it on charles schwab uh might be higher or lower than actually the share of stock itself <laughs> it's a it's not great what not what great. happens to these companies so my my, my wife used to work at lyft so She's got some lift equity. I'm like yep. this, this stock is also things down ninety percent. And uh, yes, like six percent of the workforce. But it, but yeah, but it's funny. Like they, people still use Lyft every single day. Like it's still an amazing product. So what happens to these kind of companies? Do they? It it depends on their. Frankly, it depends on their cash flow. Like, are they able to su sustain themselves with their own business, or is it? something that they literally need outside capital to be able to get in, to be able to get this point to survival mode. I, I haven't looked at the income statement or cash flow statement for a lot of these businesses for a, at least the last month or two, but I would imagine a lot of them, Lyft included, is probably not cash flow positive, or at least not to the point where they would be able to subsidize the business and grow. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these things, depending on the governance model, start to look like takeover opportunities where they could be, you know, uh, especially software businesses, Lyft is going to be a little bit different because that's a harder problem, lower gross margin, but anything that's got a high gross margin business and the ability for someone to come in and uh, slash whatever, you know, new businesses, headcount, whatever it is, and, and turn these in, into profitable businesses. I think that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of the private equity firms, the big private equity firms are starting to get really interested in this type of stuff. You mm. you look at like uh, you look at like the top software companies in Silicon Valley. They all look extremely similar. So like Datadog, uh, Cloudflare, Snowflake, Atlassian. Um, like you know, there's like basically twenty of these similar. They look very similar uh, in terms of you know their their financial profile. And when you dig into it, it's kind of like okay, you made two to three billion dollars you know a year. You know, two is probably the more likely case for like people like Datadog or, or folks like that. Um, you didn't make any money. You probably lost a few hundred million. 
But the pitch is, you know, look at all this revenue. If we just get our costs under control, we can keep growing it and it'll all become gross margin over time. And like the fact is like very few of these have that potential, um, but they've all kind of up and ended up in the same place. And like, if you look at Lyft, it's very similar. It's a bigger example with more losses, but you know, congratulations, you had 4 billion of revenue. And over that same time period, you've lost almost one and a half billion. Like what does the future look like for a lot of these? Frankly, some of them are just not viable. Some aren't, but it'll be interesting to see which ones are. Because the, the flip side of that is that investors haven't demanded or wanted these companies to be profitable for an extremely long time. Now, investors are definitely wanting to see profitability. So some of them just have to change things up. I remember looking at, I, I haven't looked at it super recently, but a uh, breakdown of revenue and cost for Salesforce. If you just look at how much they're spending on marketing, his bananas. Um, you know, you know that old expression, it's like we know half of our marketing dollars are wasteful. We just don't know what which half. I'm sure they're just going to start experimenting. They, they could be profitable if they just they just cut down on some of their marketing spend. So I, I don't have a great billion dollars on marketing last year. <laughs> Banana. I mean, and, you know, and apparently like, ten and, and apparently ten million on Matthew McConaughey. Uh, worth it. <laughs> that was good. That was money well spent though. <laughs> I was seeing cool. those Lincoln ads. That number Inspiring. can't be right. Thirteen billion. That is a. I would imagine it is. I mean, but like, okay. So, Say, say you really turn it around and you cut half a billion of costs, you know, on, on a yearly basis on two billion of revenue you're, and you're already losing half a billion. Like, congratulations, you're now making zero money. Like, what else are you stripping out? Like, we can't just like chat GPT everything to death. Like, it's, it's just not going to work. So, yeah, I, I think eventually you have human cost, right? Eventually you, you can't right. just replace the people. Yeah. Like, I, many of the companies that just went public that are tech companies are just like, frankly, not that good. I think that's okay. Um, there's, there's a lot that are, but like none of these companies are valued on priced earnings because they have no earnings. So they get valued on next 12 months revenue. And, and the market is basically telling you that like a company that's growing 30% per year with like mostly losses instead of, you know, gains or sorry, instead of profits is worth like 8X. A lot of these companies are just not viable at 8X. And and to get to go private, that's like probably like a four or five x. So, oh, uh, to to go private, it's like a twelve to fourteen EBITDA multiple, which is effectively profit, right? So you, even the go privates are are not going to be attractive unless there's a path, a, a real path to profitability in, in short order. And they're going to try and you know lever it up. They're going to use financial engineering to buy it, and they're going to take that like whatever X multiple on the EBITDA and bring it back to 12 to 14. And that's what they're going to buy it. They're going to sell it for 15 in the open market or 20 in the open market. Just to like play devil's advocate though, I will say there, there, there was this entire pitch of every single tech company, which has nonlinear growth with linear cost, nonlinear revenue growth with linear cost growth. And if you kind of like hit the inflection point at the right time, you're, you're going to be able to have this like massive profitability, you know, that, the surplus that is generated from that, just look at Google, just look at, yeah. you know, Facebook, yeah. um, you know, there's tons of those examples. The problem is what everybody missed was contribution margin profitable, basically gross margin profitable. How profitable when you sell something for a hundred bucks, how much money are you getting back that goes to the cost that's fixed, that's growing linearly? Because if you don't have gross margin, high gross margin, gross margin increase over time, you're going to have increasing costs just as much as your as your revenue increases. So, 
it's you know basic finance, but um, I think we got the head over our skis quite a bit over the last five ten years. I have a this is some something I just frankly don't know much about, but uh, just a question to you guys on how different subscription revenue streams are, are valued. Does our investors pretty discerning about different types of subscription? For instance, something that's very core to the business and kind of an enterprise price point versus more sort of retail subscription. The like the the obvious one being like a a Salesforce or something like that, which is definitely an enterprise model and very core. It's not super easy to just rip out. It's very sticky versus something that's a little bit more like, you know, to use an extreme, like a pay, like a newsletter or something like that, right? Which is pretty discretionary. In in your view, do investors do a pretty good job of discerning between those two different buckets or, or not so much? I mean, I mean enterprise is stickier just because like, you know, if you have someone who's willing to pay $10 million a year for your software, they're not likely to turn you know, their existence implies the existence of many others like them. And so like maybe the market is, is a lot bigger as a result. The the problem with like B2C startups and, and just like, you know, generally consumer, you know, tech is like, it's so finicky. It's so feast or famine. Your app can go from number one in the app store to number 100 within two weeks. And that's happened for apps that like places like Facebook or Discord have bought. So I don't know, like we we talk about this internally outside of gaming, if you hit like a consumer win in venture, that's like a once a decade phenomenon. If that, you know, like I would say TikTok is the most recent one, but before that was probably Snapchat. Like mm. consumer stuff is like stuff like a like an albino unicorn. Like you're just not going to find it. I mean, look what happened with Clubhouse today. Clubhouse announced that they're cutting like over fifty percent of their staff, and it, it doesn't have to do with runway. It just is like. They are cutting back so they can get back to a small team so that they can figure out what product they're going to build. You know, like these consumer products are fickle. And if you don't have it, lightning in a bottle can be caught, but it's very, very few and far between. G- yeah. Games are smaller outcomes generally, but they're more reliable in terms of like you can actually find ones that, you know, persist over time. There have been more successes in gaming than there have in consumer uh, for almost like 10 years at this point. Hey, everyone. Exciting announcement here from the BlockWorks Podcast Network. We are hiring two podcast hosts to build a show with us called Lightspeed. TLDR of Lightspeed is that it is a show for builders, tinkerers, and lovers of technology. It's a callback to the heyday of Silicon Valley where great tech was built in garages, not in corporate fortresses, and was truly the Wild West. Lightspeed is an exploration of crypto from the perspective of a builder and an engineer who's designing for scale and is interested in onboarding the next billion users into crypto. If this show sounds exciting to you, you have a background in podcast hosting or content creation, go to the careers page of BlockWorks. That's blockworks.co slash careers. I've also linked it in the show notes here. You can just click there. It'll take you right to the page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Mike Ippolito underscore. You can just slide right into my DMs and we'll set up some time to talk. Would love to hear from you. We are super, super excited about this show. Just before we um, before we transition into, into crypto, we were talking a little bit about real estate. So commercial real estate. I think there's there's a building that made the uh, the cover of the Wall Street Journal or it's definitely a, a big profile article. The title is Fire Sale, $300 million San Francisco office tower, mostly empty, open up to offers. And there was speculation that it might sell for 80% less than the $300 million price tag. Um, so we were just talking about this beforehand. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that being San Francisco locals uh, for any thoughts on commercial real estate in general. Let me read a quote from this article real quick. So Matthew Anderson, this is at the end of the article, managing director at TREP, 
said that selling the office building at a deeply discounted price would be a sad moment for the office market sector. I want to cry, he said. I'm getting emotional just thinking about that. So that's like the rough temperature oh. in the room, this building getting cold. Uh, people are, are crying, but... Wait, so it was, the- it was 300 million? It was 300 million and now it's down 80% to 60? Is that the... In, in four years? Is that the TLDR? I don't uh, think it's sold yet, but that's... The- it hasn't mm-hmm. sold yet. Okay. It was worth around 300. Like, like, so basically the entire commercial office market in San Francisco, this is a commercial real estate show now, is uh, basically like waiting for this one building to clear just so everyone else can reprice their comps and figure out exactly what um, they you know, are, are looking at in terms of what their, their building is worth. But just like looking at the data that you know they provided in um, the asking rent per square foot for office space in San Francisco, they have it at like 75 like just from what Michael and I have rented our office for, that's just like not even within 50% of, you know, where these things are going to be. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of seeing it. San Francisco downtown is patient zero for like the COVID city that didn't rebound. Um, and yeah, I, I think this is part of the city bottoming, but I don't think anybody's ever going back to these offices. Like you just kind of need to bulldoze them is, is my opinion. I, that that is actually the biggest question is like what do you do with all of this real estate and like there actually was an interesting proposal which is what if you build out ucsf and make it into like more of a graduate program university you get funding from the state you get funding from a lot of like you, you can cut a lot of red tape in terms of real estate um but yeah i mean that's like the best idea that's out there right now there's another really really interesting data point in san francisco of just like cell phone pings in the area and how much is it from pre-pandemic to current? San Francisco is the the smallest at thirty one percent cell phone pings in the downtown area. Wow. Hmm. You mean to compared to pre-pandemic? Yep, exactly. Wow. Hmm. I, Pretty rough. It's doom and gloom. SF has a good vibe right now. It's like warm. You know, there's less people. You know, there's less crime generally. Like the city is starting to come around. Like AI and crypto being basically the future, and all these other startups dying. It's kind of like this reformative moment, but definitely some pain to go before we get there. Yeah. All right. You want to transition? Let's talk about some. Let's talk about some crypto stuff here. So maybe we could start with our our favorite bald CEO, Brian. So Brian has launched a. He continues to fight the good site. So on Monday, Coinbase filed a narrow action in the U.S. Circuit Court to compel the SEC to respond yes or no to a rulemaking petition that they filed with the SEC last July. Basically, by law, the SEC is required to respond to petitions within a reasonable amount of time. They haven't responded yet to to the petition since last July, and that's why they filed suit. So they basically said that they haven't received any formal communications outside of the Wells notice, which was served in March, and that indicates that the agency intends to pursue enforcement action. So... I don't know. What do you guys think about? I want to get your opinions on base as well, which there are some interesting signs of life there. But I'd be curious what you guys think about this action from Coinbase. Well, there's actually something else. Like five minutes ago, Brian just Brian and um, their CLO just tweeted out that uh, that they think this that the SEC is using the threat of litigation against Coinbase to push them to a, their their goal is to get Coinbase to admit that most of the crypto listed on Coinbase are securities. And what they're what they wrote like five minutes ago is that none of these uh, like that this just isn't supported by the law. And not only is it not supported by the law, but it's not even within the the bounds of the SEC's authority um, to do this. 
I mean, incredible move from Coinbase, in my opinion, like getting regulatory clarity on all of this is not going to come just from waiting for it. Like you actually have to push for it. And there was a long time where Coinbase was extremely careful. Like I forget, they didn't have ETH on Coinbase until like very, very late in the game. It was just like Bitcoin and Litecoin just out of fear that like any, you know, potential regulatory action could be pending. Um, but now you've seen that go 180 degrees the opposite way. They're probably going to spend like 250 million of le- on legal fees on this stuff and like, you know, fully fight this battle for the industry. These things are going to take years. Like it's not going to come about tomorrow, but like everything that has been done, everything, you know, that's been, you know, put in the press, like it's all very well crafted and orchestrated to, you know, we're thinking about moving our headquarters. Like, is that very likely? I don't think so. But like, you know, you're starting to, set up a straw man for when you go and talk to Congress about what your company is doing, you know, like suing the SEC. Okay. Like, you know, it has been a while since they filed that petition. Like at some point they're going to have to come out and say whether things like ETH are a security or not. And like with that one, it's tough when you've got videos of the SEC chair saying one thing and then saying another, but also like if, if ETH is a security, you know, what happens to all the investors? Uh, Like they definitely get hurt if that designation is made. If it's not, like, does that mean all the other securities on Coinbase are, are, are also commodities or, or non-securities? Like, there's a lot of nuance here, but, you know, these are like rifle shots. They're not just like they put this out because they felt like it. Each one has a specific intention of, of building this straw man to be even stronger. And, um, yeah, there's just like, I, I'm pretty bullish on Coinbase. And, like, there was a time where I was pretty bearish. Like, this is like emotionally, you know, spiritually, whatever. But, like, you have them now going overseas and launching a derivatives exchange one of the historical profit centers of crypto they're sticking their guns on staking you know another future profit center of crypto um they're building out a lot of interesting stuff like i can kind of see the tactical case for what they're doing being very positive over the medium term starting to emerge i think there's something else that's happening that uh is like a very just qualitative thing which is it's created a common enemy at coinbase and if you talk to employees of coinbase right now they're, they're more fired up than than they've been in five six seven years right now at coinbase and i think like Maybe if you talk to Coinbase employees in 2020 or 2021 or 2022, like they're feeling a little like maybe like didn't have a didn't see the vision, didn't really know what North, they were building towards. And like they're just I think they're like every Coinbase employee that I've talked to recently is just fired up right now. And then if you look on crypto Twitter, like people are fired up about Brian and fired up about Coinbase and supportive of Jesse and what they're doing at base and like like very like clapping their hands over for Paul, this chief legal officer. And like everyone, I think. The industry's got behind Coinbase. Coinbase employees are rallied behind Brian, and it's uh, that's the unintended consequence of I think what's happened with of what the SEC has done. He's Brian got a single-handedly made bald being bald cool. That's uh, that's an impressive impressive feat for him. Sorry, man. What was your actual observation? Could be? <laughs> Other than his his hair, uh, no, he's got a good team. Like people forget that there was a revolving door of senior leadership at Coinbase for a long time. You had that, uh, was it a thief guy? I forget who that was. Like he just, like he was like the, a slick. The head of, like, head of product. Uh, right, well, you had the Afif guy who Balaji, was like the Balaji. Like, There's Balaji. You had yeah. Balaji. You had the chief product officer who I think is gone now, but like just frankly did a terrible job for, for a long time. Um, and it feels like those people have left. And and, and they, I forgot, they had Brian Brooks. What a, what an incredible like starting five. Balaji, Afif, Brian Brooks, you know, Brian Armstrong and and then Emily. And now it seems to be kind of like Brian and Emily. 
and like we don't talk to these people like we have no fucking clue but like this is what it seems like from the outside it's like brian and emily and then like paul is like the fire breathing dragon and that feels like a pretty good you know three threesome to to just like go off and charge up this hill but at the end of the day it's just like who's in the company who's still left and you've got a pretty hardened core of, of folks that have been there since the since the beginning mixed with some new people mixed with like a lot of frankly stock-based compensation that came out in in q1 which was like i think 90 percent of revenues for for last year at least so like you know everyone's definitely fired up about the sec but everyone's definitely been refreshed on their on their grants as well so it's it's moving in the right direction they they did a good job of doing what wall street wants they trimmed a bunch of headcount that despite what wall street wanting it was probably the right thing to do they probably had too many heads based on what they needed it seemed like at the same time the product velocity has picked up it feels like they're shipping more than ever before and it seems like everything that they ship feels like a good idea these days and they kind of have these great they've great products that i'm really excited to see what they do so they've got the core exchange business they've got coinbase wallet which i find very interesting they've got the staking business and they've got base, which is kind of this really interesting wild card that I'm super interested to see what happens about. So, but each one of those things I feel like is super interesting. So it, it, it's not very popular because it's not widely talked about because there aren't just frankly as many institutions uh, talking about the, the services that Coinbase provides. But the other huge one is Prime. And Prime, you know, you could, you could put uh, custody in there. You could put, you know, Prime uh, advanced trading. Um, I, I've actually been really impressed and we have a, a bunch of friends, obviously, who we work with uh, at Coinbase who are you know, on the institutional team, on the prime team, um, and they're just coming out with new products all the time. And, and they're looking forward to your point on people being excited. They're like, oh, next year we're going to have this type of thing. The year after that, we're going to have this other type of financial product that you know, you'd only be able to trade if you were at a desk at a bank in normal uh, financial markets, but we're going to build that out. Like there's a lot of stuff coming down the pike for Coinbase, just also on the institutional side. It, it, it yeah. used to be terrible. Like we used to try to uh, swap. Uh, I think it was like USDT for USDC or like some like innocuous stablecoin transaction. And they'd be like, okay, cool. That's going to be like 15 bips on that. It's like, we can just mm -hmm. do this in DeFi without you. And, and, and eventually they changed it. But like, it feels like all the products that are being designed and shipped right now are being done by crypto people. Yeah. Which is like what you need at the end of the day. If you have like some guy from Google shipping like, you know, Coinbase debit card and like this NFT exchange, it's like nobody's excited about that. Yeah. Especially in I mean, market, like, the, right? the other thing that's ripping right now is the girly test net. The um, if you look at like the daily contract deployments on base versus on Ethereum right now, like the deployments on base are also cruising. Um, I think if you look at if you look at daily contract deployments on ETH, it's like 10K a day, roughly. And if you look at base, it's like 50 60k a day right now so there's a lot of there's a lot of action happening on base right now dude that, exactly that what they wanted me back to like a year ago or a year and a half ago when like people were trying to deploy contracts and they need to like crowdsource like seventy five thousand dollars from the community to like put it on eth mainnet <laughs> it's like that stuff is is getting a lot cheaper which is just just frankly what you need yeah more contracts the base the base contract deployment is is very interesting i think one of the, the concerns that at least i had that i think we talked about on on an episode a couple of months ago when they first launched this was are developers going to build on this because the perception could be that this is some sort of corporate chain or something like that and i think based on what i've heard just sort of chatter in the community i don't think that's the case and i think developers are actually really excited to build on base because 
the assumption is that they have users. And that's frankly the thing that's, that's what developers really want to do. They want to build stuff that people will use. And I think that's the value proposition that base has. I, I also think it's much, so yes, that's a huge component of it, but it, there's also a huge other component of it, which is in the direction of where so many of these DeFi protocols, and, and we have a number of portfolio companies who are building on top of base and transitioning to base as their L2 option. And the way that they view it is not only is it going to be a, this great L2, which is going to get us throughput, it's going to you know, look and feel like optimism, it's going to be DPM compliant, we're going to be able to have the same user base and same effective uh, uh, user experience, but we're also going to be able to onboard real world assets potentially that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. You know, we're talking about all the institutional products that Coinbase could be working on, building out, you know, providing to their clients. But what about having an on-ramp for, you know, tokenization of assets that are real, that get, you know, real activity from real world institutions not just, you know, permissionless DeFi in, in the way that it has been so far. So I, I think, you know, the, the other viewpoint, too, is that building on top of base could be bridging the gap between sort of this, like, previous generation of DeFi, but also real-world assets, being able to inter, intermingle the two. Can, let me ask you guys, so on Empire, we just did an interesting episode with Espresso, uh, Espresso and Astria, talking about decentralizing sequencers. Where do you think, and I think the conversation right now in like the decentralized sequencer land is like, okay, there's a bunch of these rollups and L2s that have um, like very centralized sequencers. Then there's this end game of decentralizing the sequencer and you could use something like Espresso or Astria. What's the almost, if you're Coinbase and you're looking to decentralize base, what is the next step there? Because I don't think it, I don't think they just go from the centralized sequencer to having like a very decentralized sequencer. I think it's like they probably, what they probably do is just add one, like almost do it one by one. Like my guess and how Coinbase will go about this is just like adding, they probably add some institutional validator to the sequencer, let that sit for like six months. They add one more. They almost do it like very methodically, very slowly. How, what, what do you guys think about this? Uh, I mean, like there's, there's kind of two ways to decentralize a sequencer. One is you use one of these shared sequencing layers like Suave or Espresso. And you say, you know, we're not really in the business of like running the sequencer anyways. Um, and we're just going to turn it over to these other systems of which we will capture, you know, some pro rata share of both our activity and also all the other shared sequencing activity that's living on these these layers. Um, and I think that like seems smart. It's just like if you're one of these L2s and like, let's just see what uh, Arbitrum is doing. Um, you know, like Arbitrum is doing... Let's see. I mean, not that like, so Optimism is doing like $100,000 a day in security cost fees that are being paid to the sequencer. Like what real motivation do you have to like shut your cash cow down and give it to somebody else? I, I think pretty small. And so like, I think you're going to have um, some people who use the shared sequencing layer that just like, frankly, aren't that big of L2s that want to outsource the sequencing decentralization, you know, whatever. But for the biggest ones, like the Optimism and the Arbitrums, they're going to try to figure out their own decentralized sequencing play for, for you know, both them and like all the other chains that are building on OP stack for Optimism. And then same thing for all the L3s that are building on Arbitrum. And like, you know, that will be the new shared sequencing standard. So like, I don't know, it, it's, it's kind of hard for me to see those getting a lot of adoption in the near term. 
And I think all the biggest L2s are going to just, in, you know, decentralize their sequencers in-house. And, like, decentralize it. Centralization is just, like, it's a spectrum, obviously. Um, but I think that's kind of what's going to play out. I mean, yesterday, and we're recording this on Thursday, I think it was yesterday, there, there was a total outage of optimism for, like, 30 or 40 minutes, I think. Uh, and, you know, that stuff happens still when you don't have basic decentralization, you know, and, and there, there's all these different arguments, right, on uh, <clears throat> all these different arguments on, um, you know, is it going to be a shared sequencing layer? Are we going to uh, single sequencer and keep the economics ourselves? I think the biggest point is you, you need some point of sufficient decentralization, even if it is within the, the L2 itself, so that you have fault tolerance if something were to go down. And and I think the, the root cause of it was in Fura and the RPC connection that they had. But, you know, if you have that single point of failure, it doesn't matter whether or not it's like, is it an economics question? It's more of, is it an uptime question? Well, so I have some thoughts on this. The shared sequencing model, it definitely is a way to mint fees for the time being, but I don't think that's a solution long-term. I don't think from a regulatory standpoint, like base certainly can't just run a single sequencer forever and not KYC their users. I don't think that's an option for them. I do think for Optimism and Arbitrum, they have a little bit more time, but eventually I think the community would, community would demand some sort of path to decentralization. And then you have two different routes. You could do this sort of shared sequencing model by Espresso or Astria, and there are benefits to that, right? Is That would lead to you have more cross-chain atomicity, right? So some degree of composability in between different layer twos. There is a lot of complexity associated with that problem. And I think a lot of it is still relatively theoretical. But from what I understand, they have pretty compelling, it's a pretty compelling value proposition if they could pull it off. But to your point, you have to give away a lot of your economics. So that's not super desirable. Then on the other hand, you could decide, all right, I don't want to give up my economics. What I want to do is bootstrap my own network of sequencers on, on my own, right? That would be specific to my chain. But then if I'm optimism, I'm thinking, okay, I need to bootstrap my own network of, valid, uh, of sequencers, which is probably no more difficult than bootstrapping a network of validators. I have to basically implement something that looks like consensus, basically like a leader rotation and civil resistance, all that kind of stuff. At that point, what I'm starting to look a lot like a layer one, right? But I'm still having to pay rent down to Ethereum. So I think at that point, you start to get to this weird sort of game theory of, you know, if I'm optimism, I'm saying I at least even if I'm not saying that optimism is going to go launch as a layer one, I just don't think that that's very feasible. And I don't think they would do that. But they could definitely push back on Ethereum a little bit on the rent collection and say, hey, all of the, the transactions are happening at my layer here. I don't want to pay the same amount of rent to you that I'm paying now. So it's that I don't. That's more of a statement, really, than a question. But I think it's it's something to consider for sure. Yeah, I mean, like there's there's places you can get validators. Consensus is kind of another question of whether you actually want to build that in house. But yeah, I think paradox that Suave and Espresso are kind of maybe more like Espresso and like Astria. The paradox they're going to find themselves in is like the best way to like build the shared sequencing layer is probably to have your own L two that's like big. Like, go build yeah. another Optimism, Arbitrum, you know, force it on down that way. Like, the converse approach where you build the interop standard and then you try to get everyone to adopt it. Like, I feel like we have a lot of examples of that not working. Yeah. The the other thing to, to mention is that PBS, which we've been working on on Layer 1 Ethereum, doesn't exist yet on rollups. But people like Hosser are starting to say, hey, we, we really need to do this. So these sequencers, the way to think of them is they don't have a knowledge of 
the state really. They're kind of dumb pipes that do sequencing, but you need some builder that's standing in front of those shared sequencers to actually execute these transactions. So eventually we need to, right now sequencers are basically doing what we have moved past on layer one where you have proposers and builders being the same entity. Those are logically separate. So it's a pretty safe assumption that builders are gonna migrate up to the rollup layer because that's where all the activity is and that's their business. But it's also something to, to consider. I have an open question actually to, to you guys. I don't know how much you've dug into, but it seems like if Suave becomes a reality and if you layer on account abstraction to that, I it is kind of changing my conception of what I think of as the mempool. I kind of had this idea of like a pretty simple kind of gossiping protocol between different validators and that's where all the information is. And there's kind of different geographic locations, but now with account abstraction, it seems like there's an entire alternative mempool and different set of actors up there. And Suave is kind of its own chain that acts as an alternative mempool that theoretically standardizes preferences across all of these different chains. And it's kind of sort of now I'm starting to, to divide mempools into public and private mempools. And I, like, I don't know if you guys have thought too much about this as well. It's frankly something I'm still trying to consider. But I, I do think like fragmentation of the mempool is going to be a pretty big theme in in the coming years i don't know if you guys have any thoughts or that's just a little too wonky i, I think it's certainly going to happen you'll have public you'll have private you'll have frankly like by different use case by nfts yeah. by long tail by blue chip like there's just so many different ways that you can slice it and frankly like different economic models work better for different you know types of trades different types of transactions etc like we've talked about yeah. but i don't know like ETH is going to be the, like, we've heard that ETH is going to be the main, or I think it's posted on Twitter that ETH will be, like, kind of the validation token for Suave. Like, a lot of this just, like, kind of all roads eventually lead back to Ethereum, whether it's, like, alternative mempools or different L2s or decentralizing the sequencer, like, paying for call data and posting that is is kind of where all of this really makes an impact, in my mind, at least. Mike, can you just exp can you explain that to me? Because So, are, are you saying, so, like, what's going to happen is that wallets become kind of, like, MEV aware and then end up routing order flow where users get paid to transact, which is kind of like how like DEX aggregators source the best liquidity today. So if we, so that, and that's basically going to encourage fragmentation of, of the mempools. Is that, do I, do I understand that right? Yeah. Like account abstraction introduces a new alternative mempool. It introduces these two different actors. So basically what it allows is at a protocol lever level, the ability for one account to basically pay for it allows an entity to pay for the transactions of another another account. So it makes, instead of an end-owned account, which is the model in Ethereum today, you have smart contract wallets. So I could kind of see this going two ways. So one is that the wallets end up eating and they do super well because the wallets will essentially act as paymasters and they will, on behalf of users, kind of pay for their transactions as they move down the supply chain and then they'll eventually get rebates as the proceeds from their MEV gets go back to them. But mm. then, Michael, this is what we were sort of getting into at the end of our, our talk last time. What also might happen is that dApps all build their own wallets. So wallet as a service becomes pervasive. Really, the dApps can, dApps can also act as paymasters and pay on behalf of their users. So they can subsidize gas on behalf of their users. They can also route MEV back from order flow auctions to users. And ultimately, the dApps end up kind of winning from this and doing super well. But ultimately, yeah, it's like centralization is going to migrate its way up the MEV value chain for sure. I, 
So I was I was literally going to say, I think the thing that has changed or has been changing from my perspective over the last couple of weeks is who's going to win the wallet wars, mm. so to say. Um, and we talked about this uh, maybe on our like 2022 roundup or 2023 like uh, forecast. You know, there's going to be a wallet war going off and there's going to be like the dominant wallet that wins out eventually. I actually think that wallets are just going to become an infrastructure layer on every single application. Yeah. And it's going to be whoever in whoever has the best application implicitly has the best wallet because that has the most users. And every single wallet, I think, is and it does depend on the application category itself, where like DeFi is going to be very different from games. It's going to be very different from NFTs. But the ability to have um, an order flow auction or, or basically this this private mempool that you're talking about, Mike, uh, I think that's going to be the dominant model where most of this stuff gets gets transacted um, because it's going to be up to the paymasters and be up to the wallet itself to be able to choose where that goes. And like, think about any application where you use today. Are you, you know, digging into the internals of the application to actually make the whole thing run? Like, no, you just want to get to the app and use it right. and like have whatever outcome you're trying to have within the app itself, not like do it yourself. Um, and so I think that DIY perspective is going to go away as soon as we start to have like good applications that have wallet infrastructure and the ability to wrap that accordingly. Um, that's that's kind of the the takeaway that I've had over the last couple of weeks thinking about this. The the top three yeah. in wallets are MetaMask, or I guess top four: MetaMask, uh, Coinbase Wallet, Phantom, and then Ronin. Ronin <laughs> is the layer two wallet for Axie. Like they have more users than all of the wallets that you can name off the top of your head. Hmm. It's like, have you guys invested in any wallets? Um, we have, we have, but they're but what they're realizing is a lot of this. It's right. not like the wallet itself that we're that we're investing in. It's more like, oh yeah, we're gonna have this application and it'll have a wallet plugged into it. We may have started as building a wallet, but we're gonna build this app and like yeah, wallet infrastructure exists within it. That's why we're so focused on games. Like if you build a win, if you invest in a winning game. Not only do you have the potential of like an Axie style outcome, which at the peak of last bull market, Ronin and Axie were $45 billion together of market cap. Obviously, that is no longer the case. And obviously, that's not the model we're aiming for. But like, it's a big outcome, number one. And number two, like, you just have the most users. If you think MEV is going to play out in a real way, like, you know, you can invest in like the science project, like, you know, decentralized shared sequencers, whatever. It's probably just better to invest in a lot of apps and have one work. Like, yeah. You know, that's that's what Osmosis has done in sort of a very early POC with Kepler, the founding team at Osmosis. They built Kepler as well as a wallet to go on top. And it's interesting, even like take out account abstraction. Basically, what we're we're going to start abstracting away a bunch of complexities for users. So wallets will start making decisions on behalf of their users, and that creates a bunch of uh, leverage. For wallets. So just to give you an example, one of our analysts, Ren, shout out Ren, pointed this out. You know how right now, if you want to protect against MEV, <laughs> I guess we, we lost Jason here. But uh, if you want to protect against MEV, you could do like Flashbots Protect or something like that. You can just switch your RPC endpoint on your MetaMask. So on the Uniswap mobile wallet, you do not have the option to switch your RPC endpoint, which implies mm -hmm. that Uniswap wallet is going to do that for you which implies that as you have all these different services that basically compete for that market, then Uniswap is going to negotiate on behalf of its users. And it's just, it's just interesting. It's just an example of them extracting leverage. Um, I mean, so, so, so Mike, what, which, uh, which port do you think Facebook runs on? 
which internet port. It doesn't matter. That's my yeah. point. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I'm with you. But that's an important question to have a perspective on. I think that's... Uh, so, yes. And, and I, I, I do think we're in the like infrastructure days of the internet where all this stuff was getting defined and, and people were making decisions and like it was, it was the build out, right? Um, and these decisions will be made and there will be infrastructure providers that come in and like offer new services and it'll be competitive. But I think a lot of the stuff will get set and then people will have applications that just handle all this for their users because, you know, no user in their right mind is going to want to like do it themselves. Agree with that. Let's uh, let's let's dig in a little bit to the uh, little bit orthogonal, but the current withdrawal queue for ETH. Yeah. Can you um, just can we just get like kind of a, a postmortem on that? Because there were a ton of different opinions. There was kind of a consensus going in. Right, that there was going to be a short increase in withdrawals in uh, unstaked ETH, but then that was quickly going to recover. That was kind of the consensus going in. You obviously had some doomsayers right at the extreme saying this was going to be a massive sell event, and you know you should de-risk. So what what ended up happening? As per usual, all the doomsayers were wrong, and they may have had no idea what they were talking about from the start. But um, to the more rational perspective, like. You do have um, now net inflows on a you know couple week basis since since this since Shanghai got got through. Um, I've been impressed with the relative strength of Ethereum. Like yes, there's definitely more inflows than outflows at this point, but right now in the withdrawal queue, and there's a great dashboard on Nansen that's public um, for ETH two withdrawals. There's six hundred thirty five thousand ETH that are waiting to be withdrawn. So like if I told you that you know potentially one point two billion dollars is going to hit the market over the next 20 days with 30 ETH or 30k ETH unlocking every single day like you'd probably be pretty bearish on Ethereum but yeah you know it, it's really held up in the face of everything um the unexpected stuff that I would say is I expected there to be a ramping of centralized exchange deposits um and certainly there has been um I think there have been let me just check uh there's 600k ETH staked in the last week. A lot of that is from the centralized players, basically like latent Ethereum that was waiting on Coinbase um, yeah. for people to deposit into the queue once they could actually withdraw. The bigger surprise for me is like the LSTs have seen a lot of the share of folks like Kraken and Binance and, and Coinbase and even CB ETH on Coinbase flowing into Lido. Um, and that's just like, I don't know. I, I think the staking market has two facets right now. It's like number one or three facets. Number one, what's the activity on Ethereum? Like it seems pretty healthy even in the bear market. Even a few of these like frankly shit coins have pushed fees up to pretty high levels. Um, mm -hmm. Number two, how much ETH is going to get staked? Like my hypothesis changed from like probably 25-30% pre-Shanghai. Now it's like 40%, potentially even higher. Um, you're just seeing a lot of ETH staked. And number three, is it centralized staked Ethereum or is it liquid staked Ethereum? And I think the balance of power is shifting to the liquid staked Ethereum just because everyone's realizing it's more capital efficient. All the lending pools and things like Maker, all the lending volumes are ramping. Like it's getting Lindy in a way that it wasn't before. And this is even without Lido or, or any liquid stake token withdrawals being viable yet. Those That upgrade will happen in May for most of these liquid staking protocols. But like if you were to have to force liquidate a huge position of Steeth right now, you couldn't withdraw and, and get yeah. your vanilla back to do it. Um, so that'll be and and we know that that and we know that that's coming with Celsius. Like we know that that's going to happen eventually, right? 
So I, right. I completely agree with everything Van said. The, the things I would add are um, I, I find it kind of uh, oddly uh, expected, but also funny that it wasn't expected that, frankly, we wouldn't be just surviving the next like 48 hours after Shanghai where like $10 billion of ETH was going to get dumped. And it was, you know, in reality going to take a lot longer. Of course it was like Lido doesn't even have their upgrade in. A lot of these LSTs don't have their upgrade in. The centralized exchanges didn't even have their upgrade ready where you weren't able to put, withdraw if you, if you use CBE until recently. I'm gonna, actually, I'm not even sure about CBE, but like KuCoin was just recently as well. So you're going to continue continue to see this with with Rock queue, probably persist. We think you know probably for the next month or so, and you're going to see it pretty heavy. It's going to be you know there's going to be a lot of ETH that's being withdrawn. But what is very surprising is how much ETH is now being put in. Uh, and the the difference I would say though is that you know for whatever purpose of withdrawing versus depositing, there are two very different purposes. I think a lot of the, the people who are depositing into these queues right now to stake are institutions that have been sitting on ETH that weren't able to stake it due to, frankly, just tax reasons. Yeah. And they were waiting to be able to, to have the withdrawal queue to be de-risked. They didn't want to put it into an LST because of the tax reasons in whatever jurisdiction they may, may be in. And that ETH is probably not going to go anywhere for a long time. So I think we're going to st we're going to continue to see that as well because I think there's just a lot of ETH that's waiting on the sidelines for that purpose as well. I think there's another reason as well, and I it actually makes me a little bit more bullish. So I, you know, without revealing, I have always been a little bit nervous to fully like to deposit in something like Lido because I know it's unpopular to be like, hey, there could be something wrong with the tech and you could lose your money, but there could be something wrong with the tech and you could lose your money. You know, I remember used to have used to having these debates about BlockFi, actually. And the debate was always like, hey, if you think uh, in the very early days, right, it was only Bitcoin. So, hey, if you think Bitcoin is going to be much higher 10 years from now, like, why would you risk that for an extra 5% a year? You know, when the alternative is you could lose all your money. And at the time, but this is how it went at the time. You know, BlockFi is like Coinbase. It's not going to go down. If BlockFi goes down, then the whole space is going to be in a whole lot of trouble. You know, I actually remember watching this this interview with Justin Drake, uh, who was on the season of Bell Curve, the MEV part. And I think it might have been Bankless. I can't remember. But he got asked something to the effect of, do you have all of your ETH staked? This was right around when the merge happened. And he was like, no. I remember that. <laughs> and, and said something to the effect of, like, I've seen how the sausage is made. And I watched that and I was like, woof. Yeah, I, I'm just going to wait a little bit. But I think this is bullish because now you are just de-risking variables. And I was, yeah. I was, I, I saw DGen Spartan say something like this, and it actually hit home with me quite a bit. You know, the meme of Bitcoin and HODL is much less powerful than stake and get yield. And I just think it's a much more acceptable meme for TradFi. Like TradFi will get this. You know, all those things about the US dollar, you know, like you've eroded 98% of your purchasing power over X many years. Not if you put it in bonds. You didn't lose any purchasing power. You actually did fine, you know, and that's that's actually become my mental model for ETH versus staked ETH. And if you look at some of these protocol changes, like I don't know if you guys have dug into MEV burn as well. That is a simple transfer from validators to stakers. And that seems to be the way that things are leaning. And like, why wouldn't you want to stake your ETH in, in that stage? I mean, that's that's awesome. So, yeah, bad things can happen. But like, you know. BlockFi, it wasn't the tech wasn't that wasn't the issue. Um, the I, know. I know, I know, and I, you know, I, 
there is there is like LSTs are fucking Lindy. Like basically, that's the point. <laughs> uh, if, if you go to Deep Lama today, you know they added last week a Lido dominance uh, thing under the main kind of like TBL charts. Like Steeth looping is greater than twenty four percent of DeFi right now. It probably will be like, and, and looping is when you put Steeth in a borrowing protocol, you take Dai or USDC, you buy Steeth again, you keep doing it, you can lever up your, your yield and your position. But like, that is a lot of DeFi at this point. Like, if, if you're not uh, comfortable with that, I, I don't really know how you participate, um, you know, going so forward. I, I, I was going to say the same thing, which is, you know, Mike, on the flip side of your point, if you read the fine print of these staking agreements, all the custodial staking agreements basically say, if you lose your value, it's not our fault. Yeah. And the, be- yeah. the benefit of an LST, the benefit of an LST is you may be staking and earning yield, but I also have this token in my wallet, and there's there's another opportunity for me to sell it and get out if I needed to. Like there, there, I, I can totally see the argument of TradFi, but I, I would also say like there is the flip side to that as well, which you know takes a takes a more crypto native trad perspective, maybe like kind of a little bit right of the bell curve if we, if we were to say but i i think the the other thing that we're seeing so myself. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, <clears throat> the, the other thing that we're seeing is frankly just like a lot of activity on the small lsts and they're they're getting like thousands or tens of thousands of deposits into them and we're starting to see like the ecosystem around lsts also get to be really interesting i can't remember the name of it there was there's this one kind of like dgen lst farm that got to i think like 500 million in tvl in in like a week uh just with lsts and and it's like the ability to have these things and bucket them together and that it feels kind of like what was starting with DeFi summer where you start to like put these pieces together of like okay got this token got that thing and i i do think that you know there is a shot maybe an outside shot that that DeFi summer turns into LST summer for 2023. It's been a while since I saw people aping unaudited smart contracts. Step right up. Try your luck. You know, (laughs) see see what you win. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a question for you guys. This is a random one, actually, but it, why do you think so these meme coins like like Pepe or whatever? I haven't really followed this that that closely. Why do you think those are happening on main chain instead of something like Polygon? Oh, you want to put because the tinfoil hat back on? That's <laughs> I'm getting to the tinfoil hat. That's where all the whales are. That's where all the liquidity is now. That's where all the LSTs are. Like the the that's dominant where all the MEV pieces, is. That's where all the MEV is. Like step right up try your luck but like if you're doing it on polygon it's gonna be like one one hundredth of the size yeah like one of the things we're very sensitive about with our capital is like we basically avoid bridging at all costs yeah um we'll try to go through centralized exchanges to get onto native chains like if we have to but like bridging is still the thing that is not figured out or or to the extent that institutions would like it to be like if you lose your money in a bridge and you tell your LPs, they're going to be like, you fucking idiot. Like, of course, because all of these bridges get hacked. And I don't think there is one other than maybe like Bungie and Socket that like hasn't. But knock on wood, the bridges are just dangerous. And I think that's why they don't have these things don't happen on these other chains. Yeah. Yeah. I, of- I do think that that's going to be a while before that changes, too. 
I don't think that this is going to be like, oh, we now have this thing. It's like, okay, we like the days since last incident, like we keep going back to zero too often. You don't, you don't think Circle's uh, CCTP will help that? Do you, do you guys see this, the cross-chain transfer protocol? Yeah, yeah and, and, and you know, like uh, Link is, Chainlink is working on CCIP, and you know, there's all these cross-chain communications protocols. Yes, those will help it, but I think that that, it, once again, just kind of puts it back to zero, and, and then the Lindy effect is going to be the only thing that we you know, can really think about. The thing that would help it the most I think personally would be centralized custodial bridging where you go immediate flip. Okay. I've got OETH to ETH, ETH to Polygon ETH. And that would be the best way. And it's instant. And, and but you, isn't, pay for it. you can charge Circle's a fee for it. Like isn't Circle's thing a nice middle ground there between like the fully decentralized bridges and then like the fully custodial bridges. Like in, th in this case with CCTP Circle's like after the user initiates a USDC transfer through the, portal on kind of the source chain the user specifies the wallet address they want to send it to on the destination chain then the portal or wallet or bridge or like the app burns the usdc on the source chain and then in this case circle is attesting to the burn event on the source chain so circle is like putting their stamp of approval on it basically i guess specifically there's speaking from the institutional perspective i think that that would be difficult to to be able to explain away and that that's the only real yeah. But I think that there's a lot of people who are institutional, have a bunch of capital, who wouldn't be able to do that. The custodial experience would be better. For the whales, sure. Like CCTP or CCIP or whatever communications yeah. protocol, yes. Also, I, like, I just think the, the user experience gets much, much, much better on with, with, I don't know, like with CCT, like let's say a DAP uses CCTP. I, I got red pilled on it by our research folks, but like if a DAP <laughs> integrates with CCTP, you could then, like, let's say you're buying an NFT or something like that. You could swap from, like, you could basically do a native, let's say you have a bunch of ETH in MetaMask or something, but you want to purchase an NFT on Solana. You could, you don't have to go, you don't, you don't have to go do the bridging yourself. You can just instantly buy the NFT on Solana. It's just a much better user experience, right? I, I think it is, but like, to the point of like, how do you get Pepe to happen on, you know, Polygon? Like the Pepe pool was ETH Pepe. Um, you know, it was being bid by like crypto native whales with crypto native assets. It's not like, let me put this like kind of like Fed coin into this Uniswap pool and like get after it. It's just not the temperature of, of how people are operating right now. And yeah. if you're counting on stable coins to like really bootstrap your L2, just like if you look at the aggregate USDC chart, like it, you're kind of fighting uphill in that regard. Like, mm. I think the best path for like if your L2 wants to like build DeFi, A, you need to make your asset super Lindy and you need to get people to use it in DeFi. Because if that's not happening, if you don't have like a big optimism or arbitrum backed stablecoin or you don't have like a lot of DEX activity that's, you know, quoted in OP or ARB, like people are just going to default to ETH. And if they default to ETH, then you might as well just be on the base chain. Like the fees aren't that high. And that's where all the liquidity, the institutions and all the infrastructure basically is all the leverage too, to the extent that it still exists is in like the Aave V2, Aave V3 on ETH L1 and then Maker. Yeah, it and, hasn't really migrated. It hasn't migrated liquidity. up that much. Yeah, the liquidity and the TVL is all still on ETH main chain, even though mostly like the Aave's of the world, they've they've deployed on, you know, a bunch of the, the layer twos, the roll ups, but it's not much activity there. You know, the leading yeah. the leading decks on Optimism is not Uniswap. It's Velodrome. 
It's Velodrome, which is a very cool design, by the way. Kind of a it's a it's it's inspired actually by that failed exchange solidly from Andre Kronhe. But it basically borrowed the design from from Andre. That yeah, failed from that failed for reasons of you know, they had bugs in the software and they were trying to do it on Phantom, but the they had some pretty cool innovations, actually, for solidly the exchange. You're laughing, Michael. Wow. Andre. It, it feels like the story of his entire arc. Like some pretty cool ideas, but it ultimately didn't work out. He was kind of a, yeah. I mean, what he was trying to do, my interpretation, which is, you know, I'm sure there's a way more sophisticated interpretation, but he was, they were trying to tie emissions to fees instead of liquidity because there are these games that you could play, for instance, on Aura or Balancer, where they all have VE, like vote escrow mechanisms. And what you can do is you can direct uh, emissions. And you can do it. You're supposed to do it to, you know, incentivize liquidity to a pool. But you could also be the only LP in an entire pool. You could just direct all the emissions to basically yourself. So what they're they've they've got all these incentive mechanisms to to tie um, emissions to fees that a pool is producing, which is theoretically better trading experience and it's better for the health of the protocol. You can also, if you have like VE curve, you have no capital. That's that's just you can't transfer that or anything. So this is actually in NFT form. So in theory, you actually get capital efficiency. You could like uh, deposit that as collateral somewhere. It's it's just I mean it's just it's just in, interesting incentive design. So um, yeah, there's also there's also a there's also one on uh, I think it's Binance Smart Chain, but it's a it's a low cap gem, so I don't really want to mention it. You can read Blockworks Research. <laughs> That's <laughs> a plug for Blockworks Research. Find out what that is. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to shout out uh, or get your guys' kind of opinion on on Solana as well. They did their Mad Lads Mint, which I think ended up going live on Friday, and it went it went pretty well. And I just I saw a bunch of people get the Mad Lads. I'm not an NFT guy. I've only lost money on NFTs, usually chasing ones that Yano has recommended. You're, you're to welcome. Me. You're welcome. Yeah, guy. I'll show you guys my NFT. It's like a horrendous collection. Um, the fire but collection. It was, the market just hasn't realized how good the collection is yet. That's exactly right. <laughs> the market is wrong. What was the most recent? What was the what was the dumb one that marked the top for us? I oh, mean, I can. Frank I Frank. guess this is Frank Franks. Yeah, just look up Frank Franks, and you'll see the last <laughs> NFT that I bought. I know, Frank. Stup stupidest. NFT. I was your exit liquidity, Michael. I was your exit. You're welcome. Someone yeah. out there. I think I've got like five or six uh, hash masks sitting around somewhere. Oh, if you remember right. those, way more than that. Those hash masks. <laughs> We joke like you know, people are people are gonna get hash masks for a bonus one year. <laughs> My dumbest NFT. I bought. Do you remember? I, I bought like a derivative of Doodles called Noodles, which were skinny. You want that one back, Doodles? <laughs> definitely, definitely want that ETH back. I mean, dude, the <laughs> NFT community is like tearing itself apart, collapsing like all at once. <laughs> It is hard. Yeah. Mm. No, dude, Mad Lads was like the best mint in two years. Mad Lads is pumping right now. They've been going Here's through the thing. It. Yeah, no, if, if those noodles had gone up, you would have been like, yeah, I mean, it's because the noodles are skinnier than the doodles and because of this and they're so rare. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. Do you, do you know, so here, here's my, my mm. update take on NFTs right now. I think they're all about to do their own fungible tokens as well. And realize that that's how they can incentivize 
community, basically the, in reaction to um, what seems to be the final resolution of like no royalties. They're like, okay, we need a new monetization model. And I, I think Moonbirds has launched one. I, I mean, I think they're going to have like most of the bid collections are, are going to realize this. And I think the other option for what this summer will be about is NFT token liquidity summer. Yep. Yeah. You know, I mean, they yeah. didn't really like the first dose of liquidity that they got, them being the NFT community, but uh, they seem to have preferred illiquid higher prices versus lower prices that are more liquid. But yeah, what well, these NFT communities, what are they spending their money on? I'm sure this is an ignorant question, but didn't they raise hundreds of millions of dollars by selling JPEGs? <laughs> like, what have they done with this? Yeah, Doodle, like, Doodle oh no. raised 54 million. Yeah. Merch, bro. Token gated hoodies. <laughs> <laughs> what else? I think, you know what? I think they have to, I don't know. I'm... I, I would not fade NFTs. Frankly, everyone's calling NFTs dead, which probably makes it the right time to buy NFTs. But I do think they, I don't know, one thing, this may, may just be such a boomer take that age is so poorly, but the idea of decentralized IP creation, I struggle a lot with, at least within, you know, people were comparing Bored Apes to Disney at one point. And I just, I don't think you get great IP creation from a whole bunch of different, like a cacophony of different voices, right? It's usually like one person with a vision, you know? And maybe there's just different types of IP that you can create or sort of community-led experiences, but I don't think you're getting the next avatar from a decentralized community of people. I just don't think that's how it works. So I, I don't know. Chance. That's I, my... I, I think like interesting IP creation is like, form a DAO, go off and buy a script. Okay, yeah. cool. Like that can work, but like we're all going to pass the talking stick and come up with this like, you know, like Disney story. That's just like never going to happen. Like there's other, there's like so many cool use cases for NFTs that just happens to not be one of them. Yeah. Which is okay. But like, I, like mad lads, that's a use case, you know, putting IP on chain is just somewhere that it lives instead of an AWS server. That's a use case. Like I honestly think some of the NFT art, the generative art, like that's a use case. Like there's financial use cases for NFTs. Just like we don't need to take it to like the nth degree and be like we're going to decentralize everything, even the creation of the NFT. Like, just like that, that doesn't need to happen. I'm with you. I think the the NFT backpacks are feel very interesting to me. Even I don't know. I get more excited about sort of crypto native versions of of NFT use cases as opposed to we're going to do concert tickets as NFTs. I just it's. I don't know. It's hard for, or uh, what's the one that people always talk about, like medical records or whatever. I, that's just hard for me to get super fired up about. It might work, but yeah. I just. Yeah, HIPAA is never going to allow you to do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't want them to do that. As someone who, I don't have that many crazy um, medical records, but I don't want them to do that. I wouldn't. At this I don't. Point. I don't either. I mean, I think that there are digital native ways of having digital real estate represented in nft form you know one of the best ways of doing that might be like a domain or a website or like the things that are encapsulated within a digital ecosystem but the second that you have to have something that bridges the digital to analog divide it breaks down completely i've never yeah. i've never seen a good example of how you'd be able to do that yeah, I still want I still want just like a basic app that I can basically use as a scrapbook, take screenshots of exciting moments in my digital life, put it in this thing, I'll remember it forever. Like 
when we had the Wall Street Journal story a couple times, like some certain people who follow me on Twitter, like I want to remember that stuff. I don't want to put it in AWS. I want to put it on chain. But like nobody's built that. Just like it feels like the simple stuff is, is the stuff that's actually going to work. Yeah, I agree with you. I have one one final sort of observation to make that I'd love to maybe get your guys' thoughts on or if I'm just totally off base here. But the, the thing about the Mad Lads Mint that I thought was interesting was the performance of Solana, which actually has been, I mean, they struggle really famously with Solana going down, but they handled that mint pretty flawlessly. And it's because they have the, they kind of quietly shipped parallel fee markets, which is a super interesting concept, which is, I think it's been proposed on Ethereum as well. But basically one of the problems with general block space, like it works on an L1 is, you know, if there was an NFT mint or something like Blur going live, you could disrupt the functioning of a completely separate sector. So if there's a really popular NFT mint, it could disrupt uh, DeFi. And I kind of think the it's been it's interesting to watch these different blockchain ecosystems start at very different points, but they're sort of converging on different types of architecture or solving different problems. Like the, the obvious one kind of is Cosmos and Ethereum, right? App chains have now come to rollups and it's the OP stack and people are going to build layer twos instead of, um, you know, basically build layer twos that are app chains, which is super interesting. But I think Solana has been working for a very long time on solving. They have a, you know, a very low blockchain of like 400 or block time of like 400 milliseconds, basically hot, like very performant blockchain, very low latency. And the, the pull for rollups is, is very similar to Solana, actually. Like the the user preference, the strongly stated user preference on rollups is low latency, very fast confirmation times. And you can kind of get around that with like a big builder with like do to do pre-commits or something like that. But I think in like a year or something, all these rollups are going to start talking about solving the same problems that Solana has been trying to solve for a long time. So I don't know if you guys agree with that, or I just think it's interesting that you have these three sort of blockchain ecosystems that looked like very, very different a while ago, but they're all kind of converging on solving a similar set of problems or coming to a consensus a little bit about design decisions. I'd be curious what you guys think about that. I, th I think the pros of Solana are like, you know, it's this clean self-encapsulated system. It's not going to leak value to L2s. It's not going to, you know, like have this web of actions. Like it is what it is. And it's you now very cheap right now you can do different things from a consumer perspective but like all of the economics are going to flow back to Solana the asset and i think that is like a very different value prop from ethereum which is like this web of chains and i think it's compelling you know from an investing perspective you know not that we're Solana owners but like you know it is interesting so that's like the first one i think the second one is i would give probably solana just because it's like a, a different base layer a higher shot at developing something that looks like DeFi than probably like you know, your run of the mill L2 that launches on Ethereum in a year, just because like people are going to take Solana, they're going to stake it, they're going to use it in deep, like, you know, taking mm. your Solana and putting it as stake Solana is like the first step of the journey towards DeFi, because then it's not just sitting there, you're earning yield. And then once it's earning yield, and you have it liquid, then you're like, hmm, maybe I can borrow against this, you lever it up, there's ETH looping trade on Solana, like you can bootstrap DeFi. And like, to our earlier conversation, really the only thing that matters is like how Lindy is your native asset and are people using it on chain. So like I give Solana a higher chance at, at doing that than many L2s and their own native tokens. Um, beyond that, there's a lot of negatives. I, I think like the chain going down all the time, not that positive, mm -hmm. but like they'll figure that out eventually. Also think it's like kind of ironic for, you know, Solana supporters to be like L2s are bad because of the single sequence of roll up. Well, it's like, you know, that chain is, is going down pretty frequently. 
But, you know, I think they're going to solve these problems before the L2s probably solve the same ones. And and that's pretty bullish for them. So I don't know. Like, it feels like the Solana ecosystem is starting to coalesce and really kind of like take shape around specifically like the backpack and Mad Lads guys. And you kind of need that. Like the, the, the backpack story is pretty, you know, inspiring to a certain degree. They raised 20 million. They're in the FTX Solana, you know, primordial soup, of, of whatever you want to call it. You know, they lost $15 million in the hack. They're still building. They had the biggest NFT mint. You know, they're now recapitalized. Like you're starting to see people string the narrative together. And Tristan and Armani are, are awesome as well. So not surprising that it's them. Yeah. It's um, just as a, just as a, this is stupid hypothetical that you couldn't do a counterfactual for, but stake rate on Solana, I think is, it's high. It's like 70% or something like that on ETH. It's something like 25%. What do you think the stake rate difference would be if ETH had started as a proof of stake chain? Just the like stake rate kind of pretty consistent across like, or I guess not Cosmos, but like, yeah, Cosmos, um, Adam, you know, Solana, Phantom, like it's all like 70, 80%. Yeah. And you have like, and, this I, and I think that's, Mike, I think exactly that's your answer. Yeah. If you started as a proof of stake That's, chain, it's going to be closer yeah. to that. Yeah. And the proof of stake chains also develop very differently than the ones that were proof of work. Cause like you have this like military industrial complex of like all the centralized validators that get all of the inflation. And so like they're actually well capitalized and like, okay, now you have like 10 centralized companies around Phantom or Solana or Atom that are like highly incentivized to make it work. And so like you do have a little bit more of that versus like proof of work miners taking the coins, selling it into the floor and like hoping retail picks it back up. So yeah. like there's, there's different like epistemology as well, just to how it all works what, out. What I was, what I was going to say though, is uh, what you would fundamentally have as well is a different distribution model, but it's much, and it, it's much less decentralized than yeah. a central, than a decentralized proof of work model. Because the time at which you're acquiring the assets, let's say that you're an investor at an early stage of proof of work uh, startup, uh, sorry, proof of stake startup, you're going to get an allocation at whatever seed, series A, series B, whatever round it is, and you're buying those assets and you're holding on to them, you're probably going to stake them. But if you're someone who's buying into a proof of work chain, you're buying into that chain by buying those tokens off of an exchange. It's a very different economic equation from a how did you obtain these assets perspective. Yeah. All right. I think that's about all the time we have, folks. La last one, AWS just crushed their, their earnings. Like, did feels they? Like, feels like tech's back. So. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's just see how my snap share is doing. Not that well. I know this is, the stakes <laughs> are high for you here, Michael. Not, like, not well. Not well. Yeah, well <laughs> You know, I mean, tech couldn't keep falling forever at, bro, at a certain point. Snapchat looks just absolutely terrible. <laughs> First Republic. Yeah, they're, 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 they're down 18% after hours. So Oof. normal companies have quarterly guidance. Snap removed a full year of guidance. off. They put, pulled it off the table. They said, we don't even, we're not even going to take a guess at it. <laughs> So feast or famine, but well, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. All right, guys. Later. Well, it's a fun one. Peace. Peace.